0: take your bibles again to the book of mark mark chapter 4 mark 4 and we'll read from verse number 35 down to verse 41 in the end of the chapter and it says this on that day when evening came he said to them let us go over to the other side and leaving the crowd they took along with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushions, and they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "'Hush, be still!' And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, "'Why are you afraid? How is it that that you have no faith?' They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's ask again for God's blessing on our time together. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning that you would come and meet with us and speak to us. Father, we thank you again for a reminder of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been shed for us. And Father, we give you thanks that our sin has been forgiven because of what Christ has accomplished And, Father, we ask you as we consider this little story about Jesus in the boat with the disciples in the great storm and their great fear and then their great awe. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus this morning and see him afresh. Father, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged and our spirits stirred as we consider the Lord Jesus together. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I ask you this this morning, if you had a storm in your life this week, I think pretty much all of us would say, yep, we've had some form of a storm in our lives. Something that's come up, something that's happened in our lives that has unsettled everything and maybe stretched and and tested and pushed our faith a little bit further along. The reality is all of us face storms and all of us have the propensity to fear those circumstances. Something happens, we get a phone call, we have a meeting with somebody, we hear from our boss, we hear from the bank manager, we hear from the doctor, we hear from family overseas, we hear something from somebody and little icy cold fingers of fear begin to creep and they sort of wrap themselves around your throat and you lose the ability to speak. Maybe they wrap themselves around your hands and all of a sudden you have no ability to act. Or maybe they wrap themselves around your feet and all of a sudden you're completely paralyzed and immobilized by fear. And fear has been known to do a lot of things, a lot of strange things, a lot of damaging things to people. And these disciples, as they're in the boat with Jesus, were filled with a great fear. But I want you to see this morning, I want us to see the disciples first of all. I want us to consider Jesus and who he is in the story. And I want you to see how they moved from being greatly afraid to being filled with a great fear. But not the same kind of fear. Filled with the fear, the awe of the living God. And how being filled with the fear, the awe of God is a fountain and a spring from which we trust the Lord more. We can follow him a little closer. We can trust him in the middle of every storm that comes up. So whatever storm you're facing, whether it's financial struggles or health struggles or family relationship issues or maybe it's the fear of the unknown, whatever it may be, I want you to listen this morning and see the Lord Jesus and see the reason that we can put... How have great faith in him, and lived God-fearing lives before him throughout our day and our week. So first of all, the disciples, they had much evidence to believe all that they had heard and seen about Jesus. They had watched him as he had called them to follow him. He had, they had been there and heard his teaching as one who had authority and not like the scribes, one who spoke the word of God to the people of God. They had seen him as he stood inside the temple not temple, the synagogue of Capernaum, and he had cast the demon out. And the people were amazed and awed at this man, saying, who is this that even the demons obey him? They had seen that and been present for it. They had seen the leper standing there, and as Jesus had reached out in compassion and touched that man, they had seen his skin gone from the rotting, horrible, destructive leprosy to the beautiful, clear skin like a newborn baby. They had seen it. They had seen the paralytic. They had been there in the room as the, the roof had been dug through and all the, the plaster and the dust was falling down their heads. In the middle of this room, the lower down into the whole center of the group is this man on a bed. And they had seen him as he had listened to Jesus' words and stood up and picked up his bed off the ground and gone right out through the middle of the crowd and gulped all the way home. They had seen a paralytic healed. They had reason to believe everything that Jesus had said to them about himself and about the kingdom. They had seen and heard his call to follow them. They had been called up to the mountaintop and been told that they were the ones, those 12 that were chosen to be with Jesus, to know him and to follow him and to be with him all the days of their life. They knew what it was to be called to follow Jesus. They had reason to believe. They had reason to trust the words of Jesus. And all of us in this room are like them. We have reason too, don't we? We have read and seen through the pages of Scripture as the Spirit of God has enlightened our eyes and our mind to see and believe all the things that Jesus has said about himself. We have Prayed for things. And we have seen God answer prayer. The very fact that Maria Day has a job. If we prayed for three and a half years for her to have a job. And she's got a job and she's doing well. We've seen God answer prayer. That's one example. I think if I asked every single person in the room to go around and relate to us. Just one example of where God had answered a prayer. I bet you'd all be urging to say not just one thing. But two and three and five. Maybe even ten things. You have seen God act in miraculous ways to answer prayer. We all have. We all have reason to believe. But you know what? Faith is like sharpening a chisel. I'm not a carpenter, a woodworker, so I think in terms of woodworking. And, and this week I was in my workshop and I was sharpening up some planes. And you know, you work away at that plane blade and you work on the whetstone. You hone it and hone it and hone it and take it over to the buffing wheel. And you buff that sharp edge and you hold up and it looks just like a brand new razor out of the packet. It's polished and it's smooth and it's able to cut incredibly well. But that chisel blade, as beautiful as it looks, and all the work that into honing it down to whetstoning it and everything else to make it a sharp chisel doesn't prove anything. It looks pretty. Sort of, if you like chisels, but you know, it doesn't really do much. It's not until the chisel is put down and placed against that really tough. Aussie hardwood and you begin to push it into the wood and it peels back a shaving. The edge has to be tested against the wood to prove how sharp it is. And faith is just like that. We can talk all about how much we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all been in places, we've been having what they call the mountaintop experiences. You know, you go away to family camp and everybody's doing together and they're all singing the songs and they're sharing verses and all the problems and cares of the world have seemed to just kind of fade away for a time. And you're with the people of God and it's easy to talk about great faith. By loving the story, do you notice in the story, it wasn't at midday that they went, it was at evening which could mean anything from around three in the afternoon to maybe six o'clock at night. The sun was going down. They go out onto the water and it's dark. And it's amazing how faith can be challenged in the darkness of the day, the darkness of the hour. Their faith had to be tested. It's like Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, you know. He hears the voice of God calling to leave Ur of the Chaldees and come to a land that I will show you. And he follows God and he goes all the way and they're enjoying seeing the land of Canaan and God takes him up through the length and the breadth of the land. He sees all the beauty of the land of Canaan. And he settles down by the oaks of Mamre. And the Bible says, now there arose a famine in the land. And faith was being tested. Abraham, you followed me all this way so far. What will you do? Will you follow me a little bit fur- further? Will you trust me a little more? And sadly, Abraham leaves the oaks of Mamre. He leaves the promised land. He goes all the way down to Egypt. And you know the story. While it was easy enough to get Abraham out of Egypt, he took Hagar with him. And sadly, he took a little piece of Egypt back to the land of Canaan. And the results of that were lasting to this day. All the problems between the different tribes of uh, Arabic and Semitic peoples in the Middle East. Faith was tested. Faith must be tested. Our faith is tested, isn't it? It's tested by all different kinds of circumstances to see whether or not we will follow God firmly and fully all the way to the end. Now, you know in the story, as you read it, you get the sense of fear that was in that place. These men were called by Jesus to go across to the other side of the lake. And there, at least four of them, by my count, were experienced uh, sailors and fishermen—they knew the Sea of Galilee. They knew the storms that came up. They knew the boat they were handling. They knew all that stuff. You have all heard the stories about how the Sea of Galilee is kind of in a big depression of land. It's about 680 feet, give or so, give or take, below sea level. And all around that sea, there's great big channels cut into the landmass. And so the winds come down that those land those channels of earth, and hit the lake. And the storms that come up on the Sea of Galilee are very quick and very powerful and very raging storms. But these men, these disciples, they were well experienced with this. But there's something totally different about this experience. For some reason, the wind is that much harder. The waves are that much higher. The boat is tossing and turning. And literally the boat is being filled up faster than they can bail the water out. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that circumstance, Jesus is at the back of the boat. And Jesus is asleep on a cushion. The sense of the verbs there give you the idea that he slept through most of it. How that was possible, I don't know. You have been in a boat when it's tossed around like mad and the wind and the waves are going? It's pretty tough to sleep. I think it's amazing. I think it's God's sovereignty. I think it's very unique that there are times in the middle of the deepest trials that for a moment it seems as if God just steps back and steps away. And he, in a sense, withdraws his presence for a time. He withdraws his comforting closeness in order that we might go a little further, a little harder to seek him out. Paul Washer tells us great story. He lives in the uh, the uh, wooded area of Virginia, I think it is, and he loves to go hunting he 's telling us some great stories about his hunting in, when we were at the impact conference two years ago. And he tells he takes his little boy out there and he always tells his son, Ian, listen, you stay close to daddy, you don't wander away. And he'd be working away in the woods, and Ian would wander you know, a little bit and then come back, and then go a little further, and he'd come back a little further again. And so finally, Paul decided to teach him a lesson. So when Ian wandered away, Paul ducked behind a tree. And Ian turned back, and you can see Ian doing this. And then he started going one direction. So Paul very carefully followed him silently through the woods. And Ian got more and more and more and more frantic looking for his dad. Where's my? And he starts to shout, Dad! And Paul said, I just stay a little silent. He said, you know, as soon as I stepped out behind a tree a hundred meters away, Ian came across the ground three feet above. He just clung to his dad. And there are times when God does that in our lives too, is it true? That God just withdraws his presence and we go seeking for God, we go looking to get close to God again. And in this moment Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat, and it's a sense of which he just kind of withdraws himself from the scene, even though he's right there in the boat with them. And they're afraid. And you know, fear does a lot of things. Fear blinds us to the promises of God. Did you see what it says in the beginning of the story? He says to them, Let us go over to the middle right? No. He says, let's go over to the other side. Let's, we, we're going to go over to the far side. There's a promise in play. They're going to reach the far side. What do they say? Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? We're dying. We're drowning right here and right now. They lost sight of the promises. Fear blinds us to the reality of who Jesus is. I used the word Lord a second ago, but that's not what they said. They said, teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? They had just seen so much evidence of who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Son of Man, with all that power and all that ability, and they refer to him as the most common name for someone in that area, teacher. It's not very much respect. They lost sight of who he is. Fear blinds us to the reality of who Jesus is. Fear also causes us to question God's love. Look at that statement again. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I read that, I just stopped. Don't you care? How many of us, in the middle of a really difficult moment, a really difficult test of our faith, have turned our voices towards heaven and said, don't you care? We've all done it, haven't we? There is no greater slight that they could have thrown at Jesus in all of his days on earth and that simple statement do you not care is there none that cares like our savior for us one who was willing to put aside the beautiful realms of glory the one who was willing to limit himself to human flesh and come and walk this earth one who was willing to take upon himself the form of a servant in the likeness of men and go all the way to a cross why because he didn't care no And infinitely to the opposite, he cared so greatly that he was willing to endure so much to show us his love, to bring us to himself, to reconcile us to himself. Nothing could have been more of a slight against what Jesus was doing than to say, do you not care? And fear blinded them to God's love. It blinded them and caused them to question who God is and what he was doing. And we're just like them. We have all those same kind of problems. We have all the kind of storms they're encountering. And how often do we make the same reaction? But no matter how high the waves, listen, no matter how high the waves, no matter how high and fast and pounding the wind is, no matter how strong the storm seems, listen, our God is enthroned higher and beyond that. And we need to consider him. We need to let the storm fade for a moment if we possibly can and turn our eyes and look fully in Jesus' face. And you know, in one sense, the the fact that they they turned away from the storm to look back at Jesus and to go and wake him and, and say those words, they made just a slight step in the right direction. Sadly, their words didn't follow through. They did go to Jesus. And what we need to do as we face those storms and trials is go and consider something of who Jesus is. And I want to do that this morning. I want to take this passage and try and unpack as much of the character of Jesus for you to see and for us to see this morning. Look at this. Consider, first of all, the servant sending the crowds away. Look what he says in verse number 36. Now, my NASB says, leaving the crowd, they took him. But I also have a text note, and I think some of the older versions will use the term sending away the crowds. He went into the boat with them and so on. The idea there is Jesus, the servant, looks at the crowds, and he sees their needs, and he works to meet and reach their needs. The idea of sending away is to care for them. He was a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Look at all the stories where Jesus is reaching the crowds and talking to the crowds. He's always quick to deal with their problems, to heal their sicknesses, to talk to them and minister to them. He is the servant of God looking after his people. Consider, secondly, the wise teacher testing his disciples. I just got through... um, Second last semester of Bible school. And we had an exam at the end. And I hate exams. I I can write papers until the cows come home. But I hate writing exams. But good teachers place their students under the test to see what they've learned. And Jesus in his omniscience, he knows all they've been through. He knows all that they have seen. And he places them under a test. I'm going to put you in a situation to see what you have seen and what you have learned. Have you really learned anything? Have you learned to trust me? Have you learned who I am in seeing all the things that I have done and hearing all the words that I have said? Behold Jesus, the wise teacher that puts his te- disciples to the test. Consider something else here, the poverty and the simplicity of Jesus. Look what it says. It says, they took him along just as he was. He didn't go and get preparations and go and get an extra coat and maybe a rain slicker and a bucket to bail. He didn't get all the extra bits and pieces he needed for the journey. He literally turned around from speaking to the crowds and he walked down to the side of the ocean and he got into the boat exactly as he was. He went over as is. The poverty and the simplicity of the Lord Jesus. Consider the calm faith of Jesus. One of the writers I looked at, an uh, old Puritan guy by the name of Matthew Henry says it's astounding the calmness and the faith of Jesus. He trusted himself, his father implicitly and he laid down the back of the boat and he went to sleep. There's an incredible calmness as the disciples, you know, you can you almost see them in your mind's eye are frantically, you know, wailing the bailing the water out and trying to get the sail into control and kind of control the oars and they're shouting back and forth, hey, why don't you do that? why don't you do this? And oh, we're trying to get, the, get across the lake. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. His incredible sense of his trust in his Father, he knew what he was about. He knew what God was doing. Notice also the perfection of Jesus' humanity. I think it's one of, it's one of the neatest scenes in the world, if you like. Jesus... The son of the living God, the one with omnipotent power to call into being all of creation at the command of the Father. What does he do? He gets tired. And I think in that scene, if you have Jesus at one end of the boat, he's sound asleep because he's tired from his work and labor. We must never forget, while he is the son of the living God, while he is fully God, he is also fully man. He knew what it was to be tired and he slept. And he allowed Mark and Peter, I think in fact three gospel writers, record this scene. And they all record that Jesus slept. They record that he was a man. We see then the beauty and the perfection of his humanity. Consider also the sovereignty of God in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us, it's a tough one, that God creates calamity. And you say, where does the Bible say that? Take your Bibles, look at Isaiah 45. It's worth looking at. Pick up your Bible and flip back. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, it says this. Actually, let's read from verse 5, 5, 6, and 7. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Listen, God is sovereign. And Jesus, when he went into the boat, he knew exactly what was coming because he created that calamity to draw the disciples back to himself. The sovereignty of God who brought that storm to test the people, test the, the men in the boat with him. Calamity created, not sin. Now, people say, if you say that God creates calamity, then God's the author of sin. No, no. Calamity are those circumstances that God puts us into. It's our reaction to them that becomes sin or not. Right? And the disciples, sadly, in that moment, in their words to Jesus, they sinned by charging God with wrongdoing. They said, You don't care. Or do you even care? But no, God brought that calamity to that situation so that they could then reveal the glory of his son in his omnipotence. Look at that. Consider the omnipotence of Jesus calming and silencing the storm with just a few words. Now, my NASB says, hush, be still. In the Greek, it's got, I think, three words in a row that kind of define the whole scene. But it's so neat. I don't think Jesus went, hush. I think he just went, shh, be still. And you know what the Bible describes it? It's like the waves just went and stopped. <laughs> Who's ever been in a boat when the waves get really big and, you know, rocking around like mad and, and then the storm kind of dies, but the waves are still moving like crazy. They're knocking you all over. With the place I was saved? basically place called Anvil Island Bible Camp, there was in the middle of salt chalk out off the coast of British Columbia. And we were supposed to go water skiing one day. And we couldn't go water skiing because the swells were about from the floor to about this high. So we were out there, all these little kids in inner tubes on the swells. And it was so cool because you just get up and you get tossed all around. And even though the storm was dying down, the waves kept going. But the sense of the text is when Jesus says, shh, be still, the waves just sank and stopped. And it was an absolute calm. And I cannot get this, this... picture out of my mind it's it's a little bit comical but you see all the disciples at one end of the boat and every one of them is looking at the far end of the boat towards jesus and they're all kind of frozen in time and the, the boat's absolutely still and you can see one of them kind of looking around and looking over the edge and he can see his reflection in the water it's so still down below him and we say that's kind of neat that's cool but that is the omnipotence of god that you're seeing in play god stood up and with a word he just stopped it all Consider the omniscience of God, knowing their hearts. Consider the omnipotence of God, calming and silencing the storm. Consider the grace of Jesus. You notice the first thing he did was silence the storm. Then he turns back to the disciples to speak to them. I don't know about you, but you know that old saying, out of the fat into the fire? I kind of thought to myself as I was preparing this out of the storm and into the boat. (laughs) The storm was bad enough because the storm was raging and it was powerful. It threatened their lives. But now they're standing in the boat face-to-face with one who with two words stopped that storm. And they were face-to-face with the omnipotent God. It was the grace of Jesus that delivered them out of that storm. Listen, no matter how great your storm No matter how bad it is, no matter how much the wind and waves are knocking your boat around, whether it's a health issue or a financial issue, whatever it is, Jesus is greater than your storm. you say, wow, we've heard that before. Yes, you have. And I have too. And you know what happens when the storm rolls around? How quickly we forget. Isn't that true? But Jesus is greater than the storm. They were left face to face. And you know what they're saying? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Consider Christ because he is the fountain of faith and fearing the Lord is found in considering him. I want you to notice, thirdly, the words that they talk about, the words that Jesus uses, that he speaks to them and that they speak back. Consider Jesus' words. Number one, he says, why is it that you are afraid? That's what my NASB says. Let me give you a more modern, like, literal translation. It's literally this. How is it that you are so cowardly? It's literally what the words mean. And, you know, I love modern translations. I love doing translation work when I have the opportunity. But one of the things that saddens me is sometimes we try and make it so smooth and so culturally sort of equivalent to capture the thoughts that we would use today that we strip away, like the word remission you used this morning, like this word here. Why is it you are so afraid? He literally says, why or how is it that you are so cowardly? Despondent is a similar idea there. In other words, what is it that got into you guys? Haven't you not seen everything that I've done and yet you are so cowardly? How is it that you have no faith? And he asks those words, and you can hear the words kind of ringing across the lake as he speaks to the disciples in the boat. And the storm of life has aroused their fear. The fear has driven away their faith in the living God. How then, the question becomes, how then do we fight against that cowardly fear and live in the fear of God? I want you to notice what, the, what their response is, or sorry, Mark's description of it. He says this, They became very much afraid and said to one another, very much afraid, again, more literal translation, that would be this, they became filled with great awe and reverence. That's literally what it means. That's why I titled the sermon, From Great Fear to Great Awe. They went from being absolutely knee-knocking afraid to being absolutely awed by who he was. They stood there and literally their mouths were socked open and the wind was sucked out of their lungs. <gasps> who is this? Can you imagine standing in a boat like that? The calm all around, the, the, the winds all died down, the waves have all died down. They're dripping wet because of the water that was there, but everything is absolutely silent. And they're absolutely awed by who he is. Consider what kind of awe, what kind of fear we ought to live in. How is it that we have the faith to endure those storms? It's just what we have done, considering Jesus. It's focusing our minds and our hearts. It's contemplating the person and the works and the attributes of the living God. It's soaking up all that we can of who Jesus is and being awed by it sadly, some of us have read our Bibles so much and we we read them with a a level of almost duty and not delight. And so we read across and we see the things that Jesus does and we just kind of glide over the page and we finish the reading and we sort of miss what's been said and we miss what's really there. But when we stop and we focus and fasten our eyes and consider the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of our God, we ought to be, we must be awed by who he is. He is. The word awesome that we use so frequently has lost its power and its meaning because we use it so much. But we ought to live in complete awe of God. You see, what's it like? It's like this, like the Queen of Sheba. Remember the Old Testament? Solomon's fame spreads across all the settled area of the Middle East. And word gets all the way across to Ethiopia, to the queen of Sheba, and she hears about Solomon's glory, she hears about his wealth, she hears about his wisdom, she hears about the silver and the gold in his kingdom, she hears about the clothing of his servants and so on, and she comes with a great train of camels and all her belongings and people, and they come with her, and she walks through the city of Jerusalem, and she looks at the temple, she looks at the palace of Solomon, she sees his servant, she sees the great ivory throne that he had carved with the twelve lions, and the lions on the tops and they overlaid with gold and she listens to Solomon and the Bible says that she had no breath left in her because she says the half had not been told me and she came and she fight, feasted her eyes, she feasted her soul if you like on this earthly king and her breath was taken away it's like that it's like uh, Grand Canyon who, who here has ever been to the Grand Canyon I don't know, some of you have been to the States couple, yeah. Um, a few people. <laughs> I, have, I have never been there. I wish I had been. It's, uh, it's like going to the Grand Canyon. And all the way out to the Grand Canyon, you keep hearing about people's stories about being there. Maybe you see uh, the, the Hoskins send you a little video, a little text of the picture. Here's us in front of the Grand Canyon. You go, oh, that's pretty cool. Wow, it's a pretty neat place, that Grand Canyon. And as you get over there and you get a little bit closer, you start seeing great big billboards and signs come to the amazing Grand Canyon. And you think, wow, it must be really cool. And all you're seeing is it just tells you and testifies. Maybe you meet people. You stop off for a bit of gasoline at a, at a truck stop and you buy some donuts and coffee. And you talk to people, oh, we just came back from the Grand Canyon. It's so amazing. You're not, you're not going to believe it when you get there. And you hear all these stories and you think, wow, it's going to be something amazing. But I'm telling you right now, it's not until you walk up to the edge of that Grand Canyon, hold on to the railing and look over the edge. And it's one mile to the bottom. In that moment, the half has not been told, right? And you stare in that great yawning chasm down below you and your breath is sucked out of you. And, you just, and you're in awe of what you're seeing. And here's the point. You and I can hear other men and hear and read other writers and what they have said about the wonder and the greatness of our God. But listen, we will never know that awe until we stand like them, staring face to face with the living God through the page of Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing who He is, the wonder of He is. And that fear will grip your soul. I don't mean fear like afraid. I mean fear as in absolute awe of who he is. I'll I'll relate one other person's story. R.C. Sproul tells a story about when he first came to know the Lord. He was in a Bible college, and he had been studying, and he'd been wrestling. It might have been after he was saved, but at some point in his life, he was in Bible college preparing for his career. He said, in the middle of the night, something woke me up in my dormitory, and I got up. It was late at night, and I quickly dressed, and I ran over to the chapel. And as I ran across, I heard the bell on the clock tower in the middle of that great campus, striking 12. He so I went into the, the back of the church, and I walked through the doors, and I walked down the long aisle way in this great big cathedral-like building. And it was totally dark, and he was in there all alone. And as he knelt down the very front, by the front near the altar, he was st- not altar, like pulpit, thing like this, or the communion table. And he was kneeling there and he said there was something that was of a terrifying fear just gripped my soul. And he bowed his face down to the ground and he just waited in silence. And he said only a few moments passed by and an incredible peace that he could not really describe properly filled his heart. And it was a sense of there is where he met God face to face. And you and I can tell stories like that back and forth. You can read all the Facebook posts are great. I post stuff by R.C. Sproul and Spurgeon and all those guys. I like putting those little comments on there because they fuel my thinking. And you can read all those comments. You can read every book. i got a library full of books of men, written by men who had that experience, that face-to-face awe with the living God. I could read it all day long and all night long, and I will not know what it is at all what it really is deep down it's not until we get down on our knees and open the scriptures and we stare face to face into the scriptures and stare into the face of our god and we see him as he truly is just like those disciples in the boat staring across at the end of the boat and jesus is standing there looking back at them face to face with the omnipotent power of god That's when we have that godly fear. And that godly fear, when we see the greatness of who he is, and we hear the promises that he comes to us with, that's what builds great faith. And our faith needs to be tested, and it needs to be challenged. But listen, men and women of God, I'm telling you right now, we as a people of God, we've got to be a God-fearing, God-trusting people. And the only way we're going to build that fear and build that trust in our lives is when we come regularly to stand before the living God and stare into his face by faith and experience him as he truly is. I know people have quoted a lot, but there's a, there's a little line out of uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. It's a great line about Aslan. And Aslan's a lion in the story, as you know the story. And he pictures God. And one of the children says to the beaver, he says, Is he safe? Speaking about the lion. And the beaver says, No, 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 no. He's not safe. But he's good. And you know what? That's our God, isn't it? We have become all too familiar with our God we become all too easy and we treat him with a certain sense of familiarity that breeds and actually runs right across into contempt. And we have failed to realize we have forgotten, people of God, the greatness of our God. The reason why we don't live God-fearing lives is because we've forgotten the greatness of our God. The reason why we fail to trust him in the middle of those storms is because we have not looked full into the face of Jesus and seen his goodness and his grace. The omnipotent power of God stilled a storm with three words, but something far greater, the omnipotent power of Jesus Christ stilled the storm of God's wrath in three hours on the cross. Listening to Gordon as you were sharing this morning about the blood of Christ. I just had to open my notes. and quickly wrote a little line there because I wanted to bring that out and mention that as well. There is a storm so much greater than that wind and the waves on the lake that day. The sea that day was the wrath of God and Jesus endured that storm and silenced it forever on our behalf. Our sin has been forgiven. We have experienced the grace of God unlike anything anybody can explain. And We know what it is to be at peace with God. The peace on that lake as the storm was gone was nothing compared to the peace that you and I can have with the living God. May God help us as a people not to be satisfied with a complacent view of God, an easy view of God. May God help us when the times of storm will come. And I tell you something right now, when I preach on something on Sunday, I get tested, usually Monday morning. So I'm wondering what the storm is that's going to roll around tomorrow morning. That will test my faith. But you will be tested. God brings those testings to show your own heart to you so that you can then turn around and cry out to God for more faith. You can turn around and see the beauty and the wonder and the awesomeness of who God is. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Loving Father, we give you thanks again this morning. Not just for the good things, Lord, but for the storms that you send our way the calamities that you create that drive us back to our knees and drive us back to stand at the foot of the cross and stare up into the God of all grace, to stare up and get a full view of omnipotent God, the omniscient God. Father, we give you thanks for such a view. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are not content with shallow thinkings of God. But, Father, would only be content to stand and look long into the face of who you are through the pages of Scripture. Father, we thank you for grace so amazing, so rich. Father, we give you thanks this morning for our Savior who was willing to not just still the storm on a lake, but, Father, to still the storm of the fury of your wrath against sin, against us. Father, we thank you for the blood, the blood of Jesus that washes our sins away. And, Father, we ask you that you would deal with us as a people, that you would keep bringing us back to yourself. Father, we thank you for the storms. Give us more faith. Give us again, O God, a greater and a deeper view of the Lord Jesus to fuel our faith. Father, give us that awe-inspiring view of Jesus this morning. Father, we can look at what other men have said. But it's until we look full in your face through the pages of Scripture that we will not even know half of what they know. Father, we ask you for help. We give you thanks, O God, for the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Father, we seek your blessing on Casey Bible Church. Father, for those that could not be here for sickness or other reasons, Father, they are all enduring storms of one type. Or form or another. Father, we pray that in the middle of that storm that they would seek you out and they would see you and see your glory. See the Lord Jesus. Father, we seek your blessing and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.